If you've got a Bible, would you turn again to Psalm 42? If you haven't got one, there's plenty on the shelves at the back there. Just help yourself to one. If you open your Bible in the middle, you'll be in the Psalms probably. And we want Psalm 42 and 43. God is concerned to make you holy, not to make you happy. Have you heard that one said? God is concerned to make you holy, not to make you happy. And what do you think of that? I think it's understandable when people say it. They're trying to get us away from God as our therapist. God isn't sitting in heaven and just waiting to be our therapist. I think they're understandably warning the Christian life can be hard and God's methods to grow us and to refine us and to cut away our sin can be difficult to take as he grows us in holiness. But I think the saying is, in the end, wrong. Wrong, because God is concerned for our happiness as well as our holiness. In fact, the two are quite linked. Back in the 17th century, in the 1600s, in London, in Westminster, there was a big group of church leaders got together and they produced one of the most important documents that has been written for describing what Christians believe. And it starts something like this. Human's chief purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. God made us for enjoying him. It does matter. And yet, sometimes we're rather like the person who wrote Psalm 42. He's he's in some sort of spiritual drought. Sometimes God seems distant and we just don't enjoy him. Maybe we're still believing the truth about him, maybe with some difficulty, but we have no sense of him. But we were made to enjoy God. So we mustn't rest satisfied with not enjoying him. So what should we do about it? Well, Psalm 42 and 43 give us a guide. They give us an example. Things to do when God seems distant and you're just not enjoying him. Uh, Don't treat what you're going to hear this evening like a rigid pattern. The Psalms are very varied because Christian experience is very varied. But we do have here Uh, If I could call it a good soul doctor's advice, here are things to do when your soul is dry and God seems distant and you're not enjoying him. So I want us to hear this evening the process the psalmist went through and then the prayer that he prayed. And again, if you weren't here this morning, remember this is building on what we heard this morning. So you can listen to that online, but I think it will still make some sense to you. I hope a lot of sense to you. So, the process and then the prayer. Let's start with the process. We're going to go through these two psalms that I think were once one psalm to get examples of things to do to lift us out of those times of spiritual drought and distance from God. Here's the first. First is address physical needs. Hey, I thought it was a spiritual drought. Yes, but we're physical people. And that matters. So verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, where is your God? This morning we looked at this and we saw that not eating or sleeping are classic symptoms of 
clinical depression. There seems to be something physical going on here with this person. And sometimes we are in a state physically or medically that needs to be addressed if we're going to make some spiritual progress. Some people say everything is physical. You're down, it's easy, take your medicine. Some people say, no, no, everything is moral. If you're down, pull your socks up and do the right thing. Some say, oh, no, no, everything is emotional. What you need is support and friendship. So I'll just sit here and listen to you and listen to you. Well, the Bible, no surprise, as it was written by the one who made us and knows us, is much more balanced than that. And the Bible says, you are physical. You need food and drink and sometimes medicine. And you are moral, so you need to take responsibility and do the right thing. And you're emotional, so you do need friendship and people who listen. But you are also spiritual, and so you need truth. And so the Bible's realistic here. Sometimes, before we're going to get to the spiritual needs, there's other things that need to be addressed. Children, do you remember Elijah? You've heard of Elijah, I'm sure. And you might remember he went up on Mount Carmel and he had this great experience where God sent fire from heaven. Everything seemed wonderful. And then the next chapter we find he's running away, afraid. And he's got really down. And he's so down, he says he wishes he would die. What does God do for him? Well, he gives him a good sleep. And then he gives him food to eat. And he does that before... He actually gives him a message. He meets with him. But first he gives him sleep and he gives him food. We've got to be realistic. We are body and soul. And what we're like in our body can affect what we're like in our soul too. I put that first, not because it's the most important, but because it's come first in the psalm. And I doubt that's a coincidence. Before we move on to the next one is... What does he do? He remembers the past. Verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. He's really down now, but he can remember a time when he wasn't. And that's a help to him to remember. You go to an elderly care home and there's an elderly lady and she's really down and you can't really get much out of her and you can't, ah, oh it's just down until what can you get her to speak about in a lively way? Ah, start to talk about the past and think she remembers from the past and then maybe, oh, she comes to life remembering things in the past. Now, that can be negative because it can be just all the good old days. And it's not like that now, it's all changed, and all changes for the worse. It could be negative, or it could be positive. God has blessed me in the past, and he can do it again. Children heard of John Newton? John Newton, someone worth knowing about. He was a slave ship captain. And then he was converted, and he became an Anglican minister. And he wrote lots of hymns, some famous ones. And one of them says this, His love in time past forbids me to think he'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. Remembering the past can be a very helpful thing. But don't stop there. 
What does the psalmist do next? What have we got to do? Verse 5, speaking to yourself. Speaking to yourself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. They say the first sign of madness is speaking to yourself. No, it's not. You don't have to do it out loud, but you do need to speak to yourself. It's mad not to. You need sometimes to give yourself a talking to. In verse 4, he's been pouring out his soul. In other words, he's been listening to himself. He's just been letting his thoughts run free and listening to his grumbles and his self-pity. And sometimes we need to do a bit of that. He's listening to his troubles and his feelings. But now a point comes when instead of listening to himself, he's talking to himself. It's as if he's preaching a little sermon to himself. It's something much more deliberate and considered. And he tells himself, now come on, stop thinking that way. I've listened to you. Now stop thinking that way and put your hope in God. You will praise him. You won't be like this forever. If you go to a counsellor, what do you want the counsellor to do? To listen. And listen some more. And then listen again. And then ask some questions to make sure they have listened rightly. But there comes a point when they need to stop listening and tell you. Tell you advice. Tell you instruction. Well, that's what's happening as you move from verse 4 to verse 5. Verse 4, he's listening to himself. Verse 5, he's asking himself questions. But then he starts to tell himself, come on now. This is what you need. And we need to do that with ourselves. What's the next thing to do? Considering your hopes. Still in verse 5, I won't read it again, but considering your hopes. Now, I don't like the start of October. Why don't I like the start of October? Because the summer has ended, and look, it's dark already, and it's going to get more dark and wet and miserable. I don't like it. I like spring, because in the spring you can look forward to those nice mornings and those nice evenings. In other words, our state of mind, a lot of it is about what do we have to look forward to. In other words, what is your hope? And in verse 5, he's refocusing his hope. He's saying to himself, now, why are you downcast? What is it you're hoping in? Is it sunny evenings and youthful energy and things like that that run down and don't last? Well, come on, put your hope in God. He doesn't run down. He does last. If your hope is in him, you can look ahead. You can look ahead to praising him. He refocuses his hopes. But he doesn't stop there. What's the next thing? Remembering God. Verse 6. Verse 6. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. Now, notice the progression. It's a great psalm for tracing us through a, a progress going on with this person. In verse 4, he remembered things. Things about what God had done in the past. That's helpful. But it isn't the place to stop. Verse 5, he gives himself a talking to. And in verse 6, he remembers God himself. He remembers God's character. He reminds himself what this God is like. 
Now, this doesn't mean everything goes smoothly straight away. So verse 7, your waterfalls, he says in verse 7, your waves, your breakers. What's he remembered about God when he says that? He's remembered God's sovereignty. Your waves, your breakers, your waterfalls, God, you're in control. These all belong to you. As the creator, you rule every detail. But they are, these waterfalls are still sweeping over him. I thought this phrase, deep calls to deep, it sounds like it's something profound, doesn't it? Oh, there's something profound going on here. No, actually, apparently, it's just, it's just a word for there's all this noise going on that's confusing and frightening to him. He remembers God's in control but of the troubles, but they are still troubles sweeping over him. By verse 8, things are looking up. Just have a little look at verse 8 compared with verse 3 and see if you can spot a link and a contrast. Verse 8 compared with verse 3. The link is they both talk about day and night. The contrast is in verse 3, it's all tears day and night. And by verse 8, it's God's love by day and a song by night. He's singing about God's love day and night. So it's looking up. So how come in verse 9 he's going about mourning? That's a strange one, isn't it? Verse 8, it's a song of love. Verse 9, he's back to mourning. And that might seem not understandable to you. Or it might seem very understandable to you if you've experienced it, have you? How easily we go from confidence to questions. How quickly we can swing from singing to sighing. It's just realistic. We're very changeable people. So let's move on into verse 9. What should we do next? Speak to God. Speak to God. Verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Now, what is he speaking to God? How he feels. What's happening to him? He's being brutally honest. He's saying, God, you've forgotten me. Well, it feels to me like you've forgotten me, and I don't understand why. What are you doing, God? He's brutally honest. And and remember, who's he talking to? The creator. And what does he call him? Verse 9. He calls him God my rock. This lament, this honest crying out to God and actually specifying his troubles isn't a sign that faith has gone. It's a sign he's still trusting God. Think of it this way. When there's difficulty in a marriage, very common thing, sadly, and probably Many of us have experienced this thing. When there's trouble in a marriage, if a husband and a wife don't talk about it, well, if they give their spouse the silent treatment, is that a good sign? No, it can be a sign they've given up on the other one doesn't care, the other one won't respond. Bad sign to give them the silent treatment. To give up on actually honestly telling them what's wrong. We mustn't give God the silent treatment. We've got to be honest with him, even about when we're confused and hurt and doubting about him. 
We've got to trust him enough that we'll bring that to him. Say, this is where I am and this is how I am. And I'm bringing it to you. Or let's put it a different way. Children, who taught you to cry? No one. Probably just about the first thing you did when you were born. Crying comes naturally. Sadly, complaining comes naturally too to us. But crying to God doesn't come naturally. That takes faith. It's natural to cry, but it takes faith to turn that cry towards God. That's what he's doing. And then the next one, and this is the last one in the process, asking God to act. This is chapter 40, Psalm 43. He's asking God to act. Vindicate me, O God, verse 1. Send forth your light and your truth, verse 3. Now, notice the progression again. Verse 4, what was he doing? Listening to himself. Verse 5, speaking to himself. Verse 9, speaking to God with his troubles and complaints. Psalm 43, speaking to God, but now with his request. I need you to intervene. Please, God, do something for me. Progression there. Now, notice he wants God to intervene. Send forth your light and your truth. He's asking God to take action in his life. And the lesson here is that we should be bolder in our prayers. Well, maybe you are already, but I know I need this lesson to be bolder in my prayers. How easily we just ask God, help me to do this. Give me a helping hand with that. But he's asking for more than that. He's saying, God, I want you to intervene here. You see, Christianity isn't just about God did some things in the past 2,000 years ago and I'm asking God to help me believe and understand them now. No, it's asking God, I, want, I need to know you acting in my life. A while ago, I realised that when I read the Bible, beforehand I would pray, and my prayers were along the lines of, please help me to understand this. Now, that's fine as a prayer, and I wouldn't want to discourage you from praying it. Do pray. It's a good prayer to pray. But I'm encouraging you to go beyond it. Because do you see, please help me to understand this. That's God give me a helping hand with what I'm doing. That's good. But how about going beyond that? Not just help me, but meet with me. Make yourself known to me. May I now... At this moment, not just it might happen one day, but now, have fellowship with you. How about being bolder in your prayers for God's intervention? Well, I called that the process, but I'm a bit wary about calling it the process because I don't want you to think of it as a rigid pattern. And if you get spiritual troubles or God feels distant, you've got to follow through, each one step by step. No, our experiences can be very varied. But God is a good soul doctor. And here in these two Psalms, he's shown us not a rigid pattern that's got to be step by step, but things to help us as we seek him. Let's move on to the prayer. The prayer in chapter 40, uh, Psalm 43. We saw this morning that Jesus is the answer to the prayer in verse 3. He is the one who was sent forth into the world. 
He is the light. He is the truth. He is the one who brings us to the place where God dwells. But in 2021, we're not in the same position as the psalmist. Because God has done this. He has sent forth his light and truth. The sun has come. And yet we still sometimes feel distant from God. So when we pray Psalm 43, which I hope you will do, what are we looking for as the answer to this prayer? I want to give you three things I reckon we're looking for as the answer to this prayer now that Jesus has come. Here's the first. We're praying, send your word and spirit to show me Jesus. He's come, but I so often don't really see him. Send your word and spirit to show me him. You see, God's word is the truth. And we're told it is a light to our path. And God's spirit, Jesus called him the spirit of truth, and he's the one who gives light to us. He he illuminates the Bible so we can see what it means, so we can understand and feel its message. Or let me try and put it another way. When God seems distant, what do you want? You want to know him. Well, how do you know anyone? Just, just any old person, how do you know them? They've got to make themselves known to you. How does God make himself known to us? His word, he speaks to us, and his spirit who makes that word impact us. So it isn't just dead letters on the page or empty words in a book. We get some understanding and we believe it and it affects us. Or to put it another way again, this prayer is just the same as that Bible verse that says, open my eyes to see wonderful things out of your law. Who opens our eyes? The Holy Spirit. What's the wonderful thing he opens our eyes to? The Lord Jesus. Where does he show him to us? In God's law, the Bible. Not in dreams and visions and go into the countryside and have a nice experience. No, in in God's word. So there's the first thing we're praying for here. There's what we're looking for. Send your word and spirit to show me Jesus. Here's the next thing. We're praying, lead me to worship together with God's people. Back in chapter 42, verse 4, the psalmist, he remembers how he used to worship along with God's people at the temple. And he wants to get back to the joy of that because now he's stuck up a mountain. Verse 6, in Mount Hermon, which is miles away from Jerusalem. And he wants to get back to worshipping with God's people. And when, 43 verse 3, God sends his light and truth, the result will be he's brought back to God's holy mountain. Where's that? Oh, well, back then it was Jerusalem. That was the holy mountain. He will be back to the place where God dwells. Where was that back then? It was the temple. And then he'll do verse 4, praise God at the altar. It's all about being together with God's people, praising him at the temple. Well, we don't have to go to Jerusalem, and we don't have an altar, and we don't have to find our way to a mountain, because the New Testament applies all this to the church. It is the new Mount Zion. It is the house of God. It is the place of praise. 
So when we pray this verse, we are praying, may your spirit open my eyes to see Jesus in the Bible so that I then worship him together with God's people, the church. That would be a good prayer, wouldn't it? To pray each Sunday as you come to church. Do you pray about coming to church? I hope so. That would be a good prayer to pray. You see, how you praise God doesn't primarily depend on if the music's any good or not. That, that's not irrelevant. Uh, by the way, this psalm was written by a professional musician. You find elsewhere in the Bible, the sons of Korah were the musicians. So it's not irrelevant, but it's, it's way down the list compared with this. It depends on this. God sending his word and spirit to make you see Jesus. So you praise him. One more thing. When you pray this prayer, what, what are you looking for? What's it about? It's about this, looking ahead to being with Christ. Everything in the Bible is pointing forward to a day. What is that day? It's a day when God will again send forth his Son. It's a day when Jesus will come to lead us home, to the place where God dwells. It's a day when we will then, verse 4, go to God, our delight. And we will then, verse 4, praise God with those revelation harps, along with that great multitude of people. You know what I'm getting at? It's all about when Jesus returns. It takes us to be with God. That's the ultimate answer to this prayer. And we must live continually looking to that. Yes, don't be satisfied with God feeling distant, but there is always some distance in this life. The Apostle Paul says, while we're here in the body, we're absent from the Lord, and we're looking for something better. A little like this. Uh, when I was a child, I knew a lady called Lily. Lily married Arthur Way in, it was probably about 1941 or 42. In other words, World War II was raging. And Arthur Way was in the RAF. And within two days of them getting married, he was sent off to the Middle East. And Lily Way enjoyed looking at his photograph. And she certainly enjoyed those times when she got letters from him and she treasured reading those letters. But of course, you know, that wouldn't be good enough for her. She was looking forward to the day in 1945 when he came home. And they could be together, bodily, actually. Yes, we must, we must seek enjoyment of God now. We must appreciate all he gives us by his word and spirit. But we also must never stop looking ahead to the day when he comes, Jesus comes, to take us home. Keep looking forward to that. And then we will truly do verse 4. Sing praise to God, my joy and my delight. Well, that brings us to the end of the psalm, just about, and to the end of this evening. But think back to the beginning. At the beginning, the psalmist was panting. At the end, now he's praising. At the beginning, he was saying, I used to go and worship God. Now he's saying, I will go and worship God. At the beginning, he was full of tears. At the end, he's full of joy and delight. There are times in the Christian life of tears 
and of God seeming distant, but we must not settle down there and just think, oh, well, that's the way it is, just got to get used to it. No. There is a right sort of being discontented because God has made us joy seekers and we must seek our joy in him. If you don't seek it in him, you'll start seeking it in the wrong place. We must seek it in God. So take the advice of the psalm. It's not a rigid step-by-step process, but it's God's good advice for seeking him so that you can then say, Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God.